Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Adventures in Isochronology, where that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which shall be done. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the program. We are your host, Ben, Brian Ingram, and myself, Matthew Miller. It's good to be with you today. We've got a topic that we're going to talk about, entering Jesus' rest. For this, uh, Thames is going to talk about it uh, in a quite relaxed fashion. Um, Literally, you're going to hear a private conversation here as he, Brian, and I just just talk about this subject and get it flowing, get the gears turning. So, Ben, would you like to share with us why you was thinking about this topic and putting these pieces together? Here you have shared a document on Google Docs with the Brian I. Why don't you tell us your your thought process in uh, this topic and why you were obviously led to put this document together in a jot and tittle sort of fashion. Um, Very good outline here. Uh, It's very broad uh, with very few details in it, yet those details are quite critical. Uh, Let me explain. We have as item number 13. All it says is First Samuel. And with that is the note, Ark was out of Israel for 20 years. So this is a very general, well, it seems very general on the surface, but it's really quite in-depth. So you've obviously been thinking about this for a while. So explain to the Brian I your thought process here. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm dealing with a cold a little bit here. So I spend uh, most of my time in the Old Testament. Um, I have probably spent a disproportionate amount of time in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. But when I go to the New Testament, it echoes, it reflects, it uh, bears witness to what the Old Testament is talking about, whether I'm looking at the histories or I'm looking at the prophetic books or if I'm looking even at the poetry, um, what is there in the Old Testament, uh, it is ringing loud and clear in the New Testament. And one of the most difficult books in the New Testament, I think for Christians generally speaking, is the book of Hebrews. Um, it talks about a Melchizedek, which is a very difficult topic and I'm going to share some thoughts tonight about that just to just to hear what you guys think and just take it once around the ride. But it also talks about suffering. Uh, now, historically, the church had a different perspective on that. I mean, you had the Book of Martyrs. You had, I mean, suffering was pretty much embraced by the church. And I don't know when that shifted, but this generation see suffering as a sign that 
you've done something wrong or you don't have the right relationship with God or that something's not working. And just fundamentally speaking, if if his own son was not um, kept from suffering, if his early church was not kept from that suffering, I, I just think that there's something that's off in our thinking if we would think that that is something that we're we're not supposed to experience. And it seems to me that that is unique to this generation and probably more so correct to say that it's unique to this geography, uh, the new world. I'm not sure that that would be true of our brothers and sisters in China, uh, certainly not the ones in Africa or in Asia, other places. But here in the United States, we're not comfortable with that, and, and we view that very differently. And Hebrews has some very um, direct comments about it. And when you take that literally, uh, the subject that everyone loves to talk about, um, it really forces you, it really presents a fork in the road. Yes, it does. It presents a fork in the road that you're going to have to go left or right. You're going to have to either, well, I think a better way to put it is to go straight or continue turning, really. It's really like driving down the road, and you can obviously see that this is a new road you're on when you're out of the country, and you can see that it turns, and you can see the old road where it went straight. Uh, that's exactly what it's like uh, oftentimes when I'm driving out in the country, especially here where I'm at now. I can see that everywhere, that they've made a highway, and it was over top of the old road, but they have these sweeping turns to go around obstacles, but you can see where the old road continued straight, and you can see it go into the horizon, even to the distance. So, Brian, your thoughts about his opening comments? Well, specifically, I took note of the uh, the one about suffering and the new mindset that has seemed to creep in from the infamous health, wealth, and prosperity groups. This is something I have heard people just Repeat over and over and over for years on end, if you're poor, if you're suffering, if you're sick, you've done something wrong, blah, blah, blah. It's just the same old thing. And I mean, today I went through a Twitter thread where some, uh, what was it, right-wing uh, senator ended up putting up some garbage that essentially was the exact same thing that, um, well, being poor in America is a choice. And, you know, and then he goes on to give some, analogy that, well, you can be a truck driver and then within 20 years save up and be a millionaire. And, it's, you know, people cut them down to size immediately. And it's just such a disconnect in the current, this current day and age with that whole style of thinking with this health, wealth, and prosperity nonsense. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree wholeheartedly. Um, this is, well, it's it's come about just in our generation, Brian, we've literally seen this come to fruition. There was no such thing as that type of talk from the pulpit back in the 70s. This has all happened since then. So it is rather disheartening um, and absolutely antichrist, uh, no doubt about it. So, Thames, with now that you've got our gears turning here, Let's talk about this outline that you formulated and, and this these steps, because that's what they really are, aren't they? They're steps. 
I'm going to start here in Hebrews 4 um, because it will help the listener to to follow what what we're talking about here. And I think that that will uh, be the bridge for everything else that we talk about. So starting in is the e is the ESV okay to just read that out of? Oh, absolutely fine. Yes, go ahead. Okay. All right. So Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, (coughs) he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. For it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long after in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. (coughs) For no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. (coughs) Now, the first thing that comes to mind with this um, distinction that he's making is he's talking about those that are disobedient and those that are obviously obedient. Um, That clearly is a criteria for entering into the rest. Amen? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, amen. Brian, your thoughts, is that the conclusion that you came to? Yep. It would seem to me that that is just a matter of factness. It's just, Thames, it just seems to me that, well, when you put all of the New Testament together, even if you're quite unfamiliar with the Old Testament, it seems that that is the obvious statement that you made. Right, and to be clear, when I say obedience, starting in verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So we're not simply talking about actions that you've taken. We've also talked about the desires that are hidden deep in our spirit, the things that we may not even tell our good friends about. That's literally what this is talking about, the things that you desire. And he goes on to say, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And he says it over and over again um, 
in the prop, through the prophets in the Old Testament about how they continued to engage in disobedience because they said God does not see it, or if he sees it, he doesn't care. And that's not just talking about acts that you take, but it's also about your thought life. Amen? Absolutely, because, well, this provides a lot of debate around the expression, you know, circumcising one's heart. Um, your level of actions is only determined off, well, the pressure of your heart. That's that's the only way it can be accomplished. So some might consider uh, lying bad. And many people uh, can tell lies and not know it. Now, we see this every day in, well, classrooms across the United States, people that have been trained uh, to teach that uh, evolution is a matter of fact. If they have never majored in geology, they have absolutely no clue that everything that's coming out of their mouth is a farce. And I mean literally a farce. So... It, God is not going to take them to task over the fact that they were lying or not. Even if they, you know, actually were, they did not know they were lying. They did not have the intention to rebel against that particular commandment. So it has always been the intention of the heart that that's why it's said to circumcise the heart. And... You cannot walk away from the New Testament without knowing that. So when you consult the Old Testament, you should see that plainly and obviously. But at some point, everybody needs to realize that you had to be given the law. You had to know by what parameters you're supposed to operate in. And you're supposed to learn that you know, thou shalt not means that if thou do, thou hast broken. You've broken the covenant. You have you have rebelled against the will of God. It's that simple. And such things can only be done with the heart, your intention. You must be intentionally rebelling against this or that or the other particular commandment. It's really that simple. Amen. And we can say that the uh, trying to circumcise your heart is a form of suffering. Uh, it is work to try and straighten that out. And, you know, we could go into a number of places where he tells them to go and wash themselves, right? Um Yes, God is the one who heals us of our sins, but he, he does literally come out and tell you to go and wash yourself at, at various stages, which is literally talking about us taking control. Uh, the first reference of this is, of course, there in Genesis, the third chapter, where he tells Cain that sin is sitting at the door, or at uh, Genesis 4, and he tells him that sin is sitting at the door and you have to master it. This is... A form of that suffering, which is what the two preceding chapters in Hebrews are talking about. It talks about the Lord's rest and it talks about suffering. This chapter finishes out talking about something which might seem like a bit of a stretch because he goes on to talk about 
Jesus, the great high priest. Why, why is that there? <clears throat> that doesn't really seem to flow with everything else that he said. And one other comment about entering into his rest, this is talking about a specific point in time, right? This is a, this is a temporal reference. Amen? It most certainly is, uh, in more ways than one. Um, and I don't know, should I share some higher details about that or not? Because I can get a little bit technical. Would you like me to go a little bit technical or not? By all means. Well, when you look at the phrase, after the orator of Melchizedek, you know that that comes from Psalms 110. And alphanumerically in the Hebrew, that equals 1010. But it doesn't stop there. When you look at the Septuagint, switch it over to the Septuagint, in the Greek it equals 2020. And then when you go one step further, and you go to the 30-30, and you look at that, and you begin to marvel after what God is doing. Uh, it's absolutely, well, wonderful to, to look at, because 30-30 is the title, is another title for him, which is the Son of Man in Greek. So, once you realize this and start putting two and two together, it is absolutely referring to a temporal integer. It's absolutely referring to time. So it's 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 really quite wonderful to look at and to understand what it is that God's done. Uh, and this pertains, obviously, to uh, the Trinity. Uh, the reason why this is this fold is done this way, the 10-10, 20-20, and 30-30. Because you go to 4040 and you can't find any epitaphs relating to Christ the King that way. So it is absolutely a temporal integer, but it's really quite beautiful to look at, Ben. Well, speaking about that, and I'll just throw this out here. Uh, this is a question for you and Brian. Uh, as I look closely at this reference to Melchizedek, which is what is coming... Um, and of course, you can go all the way back to Genesis and see that Abraham had paid tithes to this Melchizedek, this this entity, an entity that we're told really didn't have a beginning, right? It's, and I have to wonder: is this entity what had been standing in the gap from the time of the fall, all the way up through the flood, all the way up through? Um, Abraham, and literally is that why we see Abraham pay those ties, almost like being a, a graft or an extension off of that order, and then we see the history of mankind, and then we see that in the fullness of time that that's where we end up again, is with this Melchizedek. And is it is it possible that we had uh, beings coming out of the be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, is it possible that this order was released into creation at that time? Because it tells us that, that at that time they began to call on the name of the Lord, and yet it isn't until we get to Abraham that we see him called out of Ur and moved to a new land, and eventually the law given to 
to Moses. So there were orders and there was a process that existed prior to that. The Lord himself had taught Adam and Eve how to um, how to sacrifice the animals to cover themselves. So is this a primordial order? Brian, why don't you take that first? Of course, throw that in my lap first. Uh, to an extent, I think there's some logic in what you're saying. Um, you know, this is one of those infamous uh, topics that people go on and on about that I had heard over the years about, well, the Holy Spirit wasn't in action before in those times, and I'm going, really? And when you have Melchizedek come into the situation, that does add a completely other layer onto this. And I don't know. I'd have to think more and more on this one to come up with a little bit of a more proper answer in this. Well, let me throw my two cents in here. Um, this much I know. That... In the end, there's two witnesses elected. Now, we obviously don't know the event horizon for this Melchizedek, but we really don't need one. We are given the event horizon for Abraham, and he was certainly called, he was certainly elected, he certainly took the position. No doubt about it that he stood alone, he was a witness for the Lord. Now, we can only assume that either what Thames is hinting at is true, and we're really not talking about a man here, we're talking about an entity, or we're looking at the simple fact that similar events must have happened with Melchizedek that happened with Abraham. At either point, to me, is irrelevant. The time frames that Ben did mention, it's obvious to me, God had two witnesses. Now, he did very, he did extremely supernatural events to uh, make a witness out of Abram. Of that, there is no doubt. But, when you see the isochronal nature of there being two witnesses, that makes sense, based off the law and the prophets. Uh, it is good for God to have two olive trees in any garden. We plainly get that from Scripture. So not only the New Testament, uh, most particularly the book of Revelation, but uh, there is no one prophet, whether if you consider them major or minor, because I do not. But whether a part of the Twelve or not, that theme holds true. Two witnesses, two olive trees, it goes on and on and on. So, I certainly agree with you, Thames, that uh, God wanted two witnesses for this time frame, and he obviously got them. Now, I also take special note that... Uh, this riddle of Melchizedek extends in part and parcel to another riddle. We have Elijah. 
We have no answer for him. We have no genealogy for him because he was called what? A Tishubite. Now, unfortunately, when you go to the realm of where it is that Abram came from, you run into their deity list. In those deity lists, ah, yes, you find the entity that it is in the Greek called Tishbi. When you flip it over to the Septuagint and take a look at the story of Elijah, it stares you in the face. Uh, this Tishbi was a um, entity uh, which, well, you just have to swallow it because you cannot mention Melchizedek and not bringing up Elijah because both were the same. Whether you like it or not, you have this Elijah the Tishabite, and that's a dead issue. It just stops right there. Uh, we don't know what a Tishabite is. We don't know if that's a title. We don't know if that's his last name. We have no idea. No idea. There is no Tishy location. Like I said, the only thing we do have from the ancient deity list is an entity that goes by that name. So, is it possible that what Thames is talking about here is that, uh, well, let's let the rubber hit the road. That's exactly what happened to Abram. He obviously was not serving the Lord, our God, because he wouldn't have been doing so in the land of Ur. He was obviously a pagan among pagan, and God called him out. Is this the same thing that happened to Melchizedek? Is it the same thing that happened to Elijah? Well, sometimes that's above our pay grade. But, uh, Thames, back to you. Well, let's talk about Elijah, though, for a second. Because Elijah, of course, was fed in the exact same manner that we see in Exodus chapter 16. Those events are the exact same events that you see there in First Kings, including the birds, including the bread, all of it. It's exactly the same. And there's an interesting reference there in Exodus 16. It says, one omer each, and omer is a tenth of an ephah, which is, I mean, a tenth is literally a tithe. Um, and... Here in Hebrews, we, we see the jump from talking about suffering, entering into his rest. There's a reference there to Jesus being a priest. And then, of course, we start talking about Melchizedek. So, to me, I see a very strong connection between the, the tithing or the time when... How do I say this? When the nation of Israel was was pulled out of Egypt, it was the Exodus angel that led them to the place that they were supposed to go. Amen? Beyond any shadow of a doubt. Amen. And amen. So, again, I, 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 I'm seeing a very primordial or very first sort of order in which <clears throat> our interaction is with, with, with God in these moments when when your sustenance um, when your needs are met, when you're in this time of testing and further in, in this time of entering into this rest, when that relationship is being governed by that first order. 
Well, that would absolutely make sense because the dire threat that the Lord, their God, gave the children of Israel concerning the Exodus angel. I mean, he flat out told them, you better be careful what you do because he don't have to forgive you. So this was very dire circumstances. And of course, we know what happened at the end of that stick. It didn't go very well for those that did violate this this covenant with the tenth and the ten. Because that's really what we're talking about, right? We're, we're talking about the tenth of a thing and the ten as the law. That's really what we're talking about. So, I absolutely agree with you there. Okay. Brian, do you have anything to, to add to that? Nope. So the the question then, at least in my mind, is, so what is this time that he's referring to of entering into his rest? Uh, the thing that logically makes sense to me is, is the reference there in Revelation chapter 12 about the place that has been prepared for her, <clears throat> that that is literally the time of entering into the uh, his entering into his rest. That's what that uh, seems to be talking about. I concur with you there, no doubt about it. Um, and it's obviously during this time that uh, we, as the greater temple, uh, in its construction, okay, because we all know that temple is not complete until the return of Christ the King. So, so this time that you're talking about is exactly what happened before they crossed the Jordan. They have to get the materials in order. Uh, they have to uh, – uh, well, we know absolutely that the temple was not built on site. We know that because uh, God tells us that there was no hammer heard. There was no utensils heard uh, during the construction. Well, how is that possible? It was – the puzzle was constructed in pieces, and it was assembled at the Temple Mount. So – Obviously, this is why he wanted this done, was for us to see that, well, that's exactly what happened. Um, all of the pieces of the puzzle was constructed, and then when they had all the good pieces, because, well, in the manufacturing process, you have plenty of scrap, I assure you. I assure you. So... Uh, we had a manufacturing of the puzzle pieces, and then they went through quality control. That quality control was obviously the Exodus angel. And what do we have out on the other side when they crossed the Jordan? Every person that crossed the Jordan had not been a part of the breaking of the ten. Now, by ten, there was a whole lot more than that. I mean, there could be, you know, 568 million. Okay, when I say ten, I mean their confines, their limits that was to be or not to be crossed. Those were their limits. Those puzzle pieces had been properly inspected and then put into the box. That box lie across the Jordan River. So it, it, it absolutely makes sense uh, what you're saying. It, it, it doesn't only make sense, it makes gut sense is what it makes. Uh, we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that God was wanted to magnify this, and he said, 
This generation, not one of you, will see it except his two witnesses. Okay, who's his two witnesses again? Again, we have two witnesses, right? That's right. You have to be taken to the bank, Joshua and Caleb, the faithful spies that went and spied out the land, even though that's a bad term. I mean, anybody that says spy, that's media, immediately uh, has negative connotations. But the equation remained the same. It remained the same. There was two witnesses to, well, be those two special puzzle pieces in the constructing of what God wanted. So, that's that's my thoughts on your comments there. Now, let's, let's and it's really amazing because when you, Hebrews, it really makes it clear about the suffering, about entering into his rest, and then it talks about this priesthood, and then we go to the book of James, and the book of James starts off talking about the testing of your faith, and then it talks about being a hearer and a doer of the word, and then it talks about faith without works is dead. Now, entering into his rest is, is obviously a reference to a time when you're not going to be working. So I find it extremely interesting that that's how James opens up. Right after we've nailed this down and we've cleared up all this confusion about this priestly order and we've cleared up this confusion about what suffering is and the purpose behind it um, and a time of testing, then he goes on to talk about works and faith. Well, that's that's right, he does. Uh, and the works in question here is all external. Uh, there's no consternation as to what good works he was talking about, and he certainly wasn't talking about the law. Now, let me make that perfectly clear. Telling the truth is not a work. Okay, that's that, that's not a labor. No, I'm I'm sorry to to have to put the kibosh on that. I know people's going to get upset about that, but that's not a work. The New Testament is plainly clear what good works are. It is uh, well. Uh, the most famous one, of course, taking care of widows and orphans. Uh, there is no doubt as to what a good work is. And, of course, you should have good works because, well, as you stated, when you're being taken care of, you don't work, you get everything for free. So you should absolutely not have a problem with doing good works. You absolutely should not have a problem. And this extends to uh, our modern view of uh, tithe. And I've made myself perfectly clear um, on uh, my website. I've made myself perfectly clear in the about. Uh, a poor person, uh, we have a federally recognized poverty level. If you're below the poverty level, you don't owe tithe. You, you don't have excess. Now, maybe that number is correct or not, and I'm not going to debate that point. I'm just saying that if you make, uh, you know, $123,000 a year, uh, you're required to give more than, you know, what you think to be 10%. Uh, and, of course, it brings up the images of Ananias and Sapphira. 
uh, we we have that full bore there. So there is no doubt uh, that there is no labor in serving the Lord. Okay, let's just get that let's just get that straight. It's not a work to tell the truth. It's not a work to uh, have everything in your possession actually be yours. You don't have any contraband. That that's that's not a work. If you think that not lying is a work and not stealing is a work, you have grossly miscalculated the dimensions of his words that came out of his mouth. And that's just my point. I mean, Brian's point may vary, your point may vary, but I have given my opinion on the matter. Well, amen. And, and the first thing that you said there, talking about the widow and the orphan, that that's literally who Elijah was ministering to. And that's literally who was ministering to Elijah by being obedient with that last cup of flour and the little bit of oil that they had. Amen? Absolutely, amen. And, uh, so, yeah, go ahead. So again, we're seeing this... <clears throat> We're seeing this hint or this shadow of this um, Melchizedek order in this time when when someone is not in a position to to uh, take care of their own needs. Amen. I mean, amen. Brian, what do you got to say? Well, I just wanted to go backwards to where you guys brought up uh, this day of rest because when I look at what's going on there in Hebrews four. You know, the first thing that stands out to me is going from the sixth to the seventh day and a time of rest. Well, you know, if we consider what is stated in Peter about a year is a day, a day is a year, and some people have broken that down into there being a 6,000-year time frame, and then the 7,000th year is the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Now, at first, that might sound sound a little odd but then when you go over here to Ezekiel 38 specifically start here in verses 10 through 13 and folks remember that Ezekiel 38 and 39 are in reverse order the first event is Ezekiel 39 Ezekiel 38 happens after the thousand year reign when Satan is loose for a time and it's right here in broad daylight once you know that the first uh Statement being said here in verse 10, thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up the land against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. And I'm going to stop there for one moment. Folks, have you taken a look at Israel right now? There's walls everywhere throughout the West Bank. And obviously, if you look at Gaza Strip right now, it's completely walled in, so to say, by fencing and barbed wire and everything else. So we don't have that happening right now. But moving forward, to capture spoil, seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited, and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle goods who live at the center of the world. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, all 
with all its villages, will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver, gold, to take away cattle, goods, and capture great spoil? And it states right here in verse, is that verse 10 or verse 11? I will go against those who are at rest. Well, that's exactly what it says. And this is exactly the answer to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I, I just don't understand why people are so ingrained, they're so in love with the pyramid scheme that they're so perpetually lazy. They're, they don't even know what to do it without a currency that they can go purchase products from slaves. Now, please don't insult my intelligence, okay? You go to the grocery store. How much do you think that cart boy makes? How many slaves was under employment to get you that can of, oh, I don't know, oysters? Okay? Christ and the Hamsharatim will never allow a bartering process in their kingdom. Let's read and see what's going to happen. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you just heard it come out of Brian's mouth. What is the target? What's at the center of those four corners? I mean, it doesn't take... I mean, God is using such plain language here. Even in this translation from the Greek to the English, it's just it just reads so naturally. Brian just told you. He just give you the answer to all your questions as to how is Satan, when he's released, how is he going to tempt people? I mean, Brian just told you. This is the whole reason why it says that, that phrase, the four corners of the earth. You're supposed to know, oh, I know what the opposite of that is. What's in the center of four corners? You can only go one place. It's equal 38. There is no bartering. There's no buying and selling the goods. So they come to steal all the good things so they can start selling it. Look, here is proof in the pudding. Go back to Revelation chapter 13. Okay, you, you have to take note that I'm not going to spend too much time on this number. And there's nobody more qualified that I know of to deal with any of these numbers except uh, the rabbinical schools in the land of Israel. So I'm not going to talk about this number, but why does Revelation chapter 13, verse 17 say this? And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell. But you're so 
addicted to your pyramid scheme. You love it so there's no way. 99% of you can go get your own oysters to eat. Why the rest of us have to eat spam. It's... God has so much to show you if you would just circumcise your heart. Ben? Well, one thing I forgot to mention, um, I jumped all the way from Hebrews uh, 5, the first mention there of the priest, to 7, and I forgot to mention, right, 6, he gives you a hint about this time as well, because he says the land drinks up the water, and <laughs> when when do when do we see the land drinking up the water? There's 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 two times. One is with Korah's rebellion, and the second time is there in, in Revelation chapter twelve. So, if there's any question <clears throat> about when we're entering into this rest, uh, at least consider those two moments because he he fits that right in here neatly. And then you go into Melchizedek, which seems to be, um, again, a reference to what goes up, replacing something that came down. Absolutely. Um, it's, well, it's like actually seeing a puzzle, Ben. You know what a puzzle looks like, right? Yeah, without the picture, you can't put it yeah. together. Well, you know, because you know what a puzzle is. When right. you walk up to it, of course, it has the little lines in it. You can clearly see the pieces. Forget the picture. Forget the picture. Let's say you come into my house, and on my table was a square that was solid white. You'd look at the reflections coming in from the window, and you'd plainly see, hey, that's a puzzle. That Yes, it's – what you're saying is that this is – Obviously, a puzzle. It's obviously that's what it is. Yes, and and I mean, what's amazing is is that you know when we start first started doing this six years ago, um, I would have to go from Genesis all the way someplace else to see the next piece. But now I can look and I can see literally right here in the, the build up in Hebrews exactly the pieces sequentially that I'm expecting to see. I don't have to go very far like I used to. I can actually see the pattern, the fract fractally. I can see it resonating right here in these chapters chronologically. From Hebrews 1 all the way through 7, I can see exactly what I'm expecting to see. Well, right, because... When you walk into my house, you're going to see this puzzle at an extreme at an extreme angle, and there's no way you can tell what this puzzle is of. But because you're getting secondary light refraction off of it, you can plainly see that it's cut up in pieces. So you can't see the picture yet, but you know before you walk up and start inspecting it, you know it's a puzzle. It's it's. It's the easiest, most simplistic way for him to do it. As soon as you see it, that's a puzzle. So I'm going to have to walk over to that table and inspect it to find out what that's a puzzle of. But you know sure fire well. It, in fact, is a puzzle. 
And no matter what the picture is, is irrelevant. I don't care if you title the picture James. I don't care if you title the picture Job. I don't care if you title the picture John. You know it's a puzzle. That's what you know. Way before you ever get close enough to read those particular titles or those particular details or those particular calculations. I mean, have we all forgot? Let him who hath understanding calculate. Let him who hath understanding. So, Brian, your thoughts. Am I way off base or is, you know, you quoted from Ezekiel 38. Is that a puzzle or is it something different than Hebrews? Your thoughts, Brian? Well, to me, is Hebrews is it's saying the same thing that's being stated in a different way here in Ezekiel 38. It's giving you the same details spoken to you in a different way, but you just have to have eyes to see it. And, you know, it's like Ben was pointing out, once you know the Bible well enough, you'll start locking on to a certain theme, and the next thing you know, you're going to start seeing it all over the place. But it takes time of studying it to be able to recognize that. That's why when you guys were bringing this up, talking about this earlier, my mind immediately went to Ezekiel. Whereas other people listening to it, their minds may be going other places, which is absolutely fine. Well, yes, it's it's absolutely fine because it's all a puzzle. <laughs> it's just that you knew what this puzzle was. You, you, you could see that this was Ezekiel 38. Now, Thames wasn't close enough to your puzzle you was looking at. He was looking at a different puzzle, and it was Hebrews. But you both had the wherewithal to understand this is a puzzle. And a lot of people don't appreciate uh, my bewilderment over Brian. Completely bewildered me. I had never in my time met anyone that quickly recognized the puzzle having not come anywhere remotely close from the modern established church. And people don't appreciate how many hundreds of hours that, that Brian and I spent privately just talking about the Bible. It, 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 any number of verses, any number of chapters, Brian would just riddle me and I would provide the answer. And it, it was just, a, this is the truth. I have never in my time met anyone that so quickly adapted to be able to see it everywhere. I mean, it's almost like Brian knew, yeah, yeah, I know this is a puzzle, but I just don't know what the picture looks like yet. And then all of a sudden, he, he got very few details, very few parameters did I provide him with before he just naturally realized he was looking at a puzzle, and he would just look at at Ezekiel or or Zephaniah, or it, it just didn't matter. Uh, he immediately knew the pattern to look for. It's almost like, well, I hesitate to say it, but, well, I'll put it very plainly. 
I already stated that phrase from Revelation. It's obvious that Brian had the ability to calculate. That being the case, that being the proof in the pudding of the statement that I mentioned from the book of Revelation, and I shall mention it again. Let him who hath understanding calculate. So, and I told Brian, that's one of the very first things I told Brian. Once you see this is a pattern, once you see and understand that, well, it's a puzzle. Once you know it's a puzzle, it doesn't matter if it's across the room or across the yard. It can even be across the city. As you're walking up to it, you already know it's a puzzle. The closer I get to it, the more I study it, the more I read it, it's going to become clearer. The image will become sharper the closer that I get. But this is a puzzle. And a lot of people don't appreciate that. That even though Brian showed a knack for that, that's irrelevant. Yes, because Brian had a knack for it, the time was shortened. But I've never met anybody that spent any time looking at God's Word that was not eventually able to see, hey, I'm looking at a puzzle. That's what this is. Now, it might be a picture of Matthew. It might be a picture of, of, of Luke. Or it might be a picture of Peter. This is a puzzle. It's not a picture. It's a puzzle. And it all is the same thing. You go to Genesis, that's a puzzle. You go to uh, the Exodus, it's the exact same dimensions, but it's a puzzle. Different picture, same puzzle. I mean, literally, the puzzle pieces, if you inspect them, they're shaped exactly the same way. And once you can see it, the Bible will literally explode off its pages. Perhaps I was a little long-winded there. But, uh, Ben, back to you. No, amen. I'm, I'm just going to edify further on this. Um, I mentioned two of the pieces overlapping, Korah's Rebellion and uh, the ground soaking up the water in Revelation 12. But we've talked about Elijah. Um, 1 Kings 18, verse 38. And the fire that the Lord... The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burning offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. The water's gone again. We should have been expecting that. Well, uh, that's one of the puzzle shapes. Ben, that's one of the puzzle shapes. That's one of those, well, the best way to explain it is what's the most efficient way to do a puzzle? You look for the four corner pieces. And then your next step is to look for all the other ones that got straight edges, right? Yeah. So this lapping up of the water is a corner piece. That's easy to spot. Or it should be. Amen. You should you should be expecting to see it and and, and we see it over and over and over and over and over again. This timeline puzzle is it's just amazing because it's hiding right there in plain sight. Is it appropriate? I mean, I know we're we're obviously heading to the end of this this program. We'll obviously have to be a two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or how many other? Well, 
puzzle pieces we have here, but is it inappropriate if I mention another one? Please. We have in the kingdom a sea that looked like glass. Well, what does that mean geographically speaking? Using geology, what is that? Well, ladies and gentlemen, let me assure you that, well, everybody knows that this planet's not six million years old uh, because of how much sediment flows just from the Mississippi River every day. Okay? So, how did that sea of glass get to be free of impurities? How? How is that possible? Well, I'll riddle you. You know who gives up. It's dead first. Now, when I say that, you immediately know what I'm talking about. Or you think I do. Before, I've used a different tongue. This one, I shall use the tongue of a geologist. Let me explain it to you. The sea right now is completely saturated with impurities because it's much like, well, the kidneys. Okay? This is what happens. It rains. And the water washes all the impurities because, you see, plants, when they grow, they expend waste. So that runs into the rivers, which runs into the seas. Okay? Now, unfortunately, the sea has no bladder. It has no bladder. It can't get rid of those impurities. So God has to tell his children, well, don't worry about it, because in the kingdom, you know, there's going to be a tree here, but it's going to be fed with Water, that's like glass. Absolutely no impurities. Well, how does, he's got to tell you that some way, and he tells you. The sea gives up its dead. God takes away its impurity. You're in an endgame, whether you like it or not. Because if we do go on for six million years, there won't be no surface. You do understand that, right? Because of erosion, whether it be wind or water erosion, we're going to a complete sea, whether you like it or not. Now, I'm telling you the truth, and all geologists know this. I mean, uh, does anybody know how far back that the Niagara Falls uh, shoreline has moved? Well, the fall line has moved just since I was born. Yeah. God has to tell his children, those with, well, let me say this again. Let who, him who hath understanding calculate. That's the person that can calculate. That's why he had to tell me that the sea would give up its dead. Just because you were thinking it meant people, mm, that's not what he said. But it's definitely how you get a sea of glass with, of course, the tree of life, you know, is there and we all get to eat it. Free of what? What? Now, now, now what does he say? Oh, yes. Free of charge. <laughs> Free of charge. So... I know this corner piece. I can see it everywhere. Not because I'm special, or not because I'm, 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 I have a knack for something. No, it's just that as a child, I was taught, you're looking at a puzzle. Forget the details for now. You're a child, you just need to learn that this is a puzzle. When we read, uh, 1 Kings, it's a puzzle. You don't have to worry about the details yet. Just know in your heart it's a puzzle. Yes, it's painting for you a picture. Yes, David does this and that, and, and Goliath comes, you know, and there's this and that. There's all kinds of details to this painting as it's being painted. 
but it's being painted upon puzzle pieces that are exactly the same, no matter what picture God paints on it. So, this water issuing is a corner piece. Now you all know it. Hey, that's a corner piece. But we've also provided with you what's in the middle. What is the centerpiece? Ah, yes, I can tell you. I once had my nephew construct a thousand-piece puzzle. Guess what? The Last Supper. And guess which piece I took out that he was unaware of? Ah, yes, Christ's face. I took that piece because it was right smack dab in the center. So we know what's at the center of the earth, and we know why Revelation wants to point out to you the four corners, and why this is absolutely the last battle, lock, stalk, and barrel. But we can't understand any of those details without first recognizing this is a puzzle. You put together a puzzle by first finding those four corner pieces, and then you make a pile of all the ones with straight edges. But you're not done till you put that last puzzle piece in. But if you don't know you're dealing with a puzzle, if you don't know no matter what the puzzle looks like, all the pieces have the same shapes, well, I guess that is a gauge as to one's ability to calculate. Whether he be great, rich, poor, free, or slave. And that is the end of the matter, as far as I am concerned. Interesting thing about those puzzles. Um, I saw an article the other day, or maybe it was on Twitter, where they were showing <clears throat> two different pictures that had been put together into the same puzzle and said that the machines that they used to cut out those puzzle pieces are all standardized. <laughs> so they had a train at the top, and they had a, a horse on the bottom. And, of course, the puzzle was a perfect square, and the pieces all fit together. It just was an odd-looking odd picture, but it was all neatly fitted together, <laughs> just like it was supposed to. <laughs> I agree. That is kind of humorous. It had two witnesses on it, a horse and a train. but. Humorous, indeed. Brian, why don't you share your thoughts? Uh, well, there's other little odds and ends here, too. I mean, when we went over to Psalms out 110, there was one phrase that stood out like a sore thumb in the midst of this. And now, I'm actually going to bring this up first because, folks, you have to understand that I've done extensive work in the background on cycles of time and just extensive extensive time calculations locking certain things in and you made mention of uh well of course it starts out 1010 being one of the alphanumeric numerics 2020 that catches my attention right away and that's due to private discussions we've had in the background concerning possibilities of how circumstances have been working out over the course of the last 120 years here, going backwards from, or over the course of the last 120 years, uh, starting in 1899 and moving forward, how we've got repetitions that keep falling on the nines. So uh, the 2020 thing caught my attention, but there's a statement in here. In uh, verse 3 of Psalms 110, 
where you were speaking of the water, but it says something very peculiar in the way it's stated. Your people offer themselves willingly in the day of your warfare in adornments in adornments of holiness from the womb of the dawn. Yours is the dew of your youth. Well, yes, I agree with you. That's a very interesting uh for time restraints, I wasn't wanting to cover this chapter because well, I mean, just because of time, I mean, you can plainly see, once you look at Psalm 110, once you're dealing with, you see the puzzle, because it's all right here. And he makes himself perfectly clear with just seven verses. This is your puzzle. This is your stamp. Uh, but Brian, I elaborate. What's your thoughts on that verse? Why do you find it interesting? Well, even if we go backwards, and I'm wondering if this is the same, uh, let me take a look here real fast. If this is the same word for womb that we were talking about last, yeah, it is. It's the same word that's associated with vulture when we were speaking about Vega and the possibility of a uh, relocation to uh, that region. So, you know, and the statement, like I said before, womb of the dawn, that's saying that's saying something very interesting. I mean, just the, the those words being put together like that, just, I, I don't know, it paints a really interesting picture in my mind. I don't know how to elaborate too much more on that, but... Well, yes, because, well, uh, we don't have to elaborate on it. People understand... That, that phrase, um, being in direct contrast with, well, Isaiah chapter 14. That's where they know that phrase from. The dawn. That's, that's where they know it from, but yes, that is, uh, Rakem there, and, uh, Mishkar, and, well, for time constraints, I think we've said enough and pointed people to, Something else uh, that they needed to investigate there. Um, it's important that everybody realize this is obviously an answer to the parent prophecy. Um, I guess that uh, all of you, I'm expecting all of you to be very familiar with the parent prophecy, but uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit as my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. For your feet. That is the parent prophecy from Genesis, the 22nd chapter, and verse 17. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and sand on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the enemy of their gates forever and forever. Amen. So, let's pass this back to Ben with his final uh, comments and where he intends to go with this. If we're going to finish it, if we're going to complete this list and go down it until everybody's aware of what this is a puzzle of. Um, so, Ben, the mic is yours. 
Well, when Brian mentions that, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the the whole the holy garments were were clothed in white robes of righteousness, which are the righteous acts that were committed by the saints. So again, faith without works is dead. Where again we're talking about a distinction here um, between those who have been obedient and those who have not. One because of what they're clothed in, and two because we're talking about the morning. Because we know that those that are not being obedient are cast into outer darkness, and this is an important distinction. Because, you know, I think Lamentations three says it very nicely. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion as my soul, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So at some point in time, just mechanically speaking, if his mercies renew every morning, the disobedient are going to have to be placed in a location where they're not exposed to the morning, um, to where they can actually be judged. And what Brian uh, just spoke of there in Psalms is, again, it's it's mechanically you can put all these pieces together and understand that this isn't just beautiful poetry. It actually means something. Um, there's a reason why each and every single one of these words is used. And in fact, there's a reason why these concepts are placed where they're placed. And it's just a beautiful thing. I agree. It is an extremely beautiful thing, and, and the best way that I've been able to describe it is, well, like a light and a light switch. The electricity certainly comes from somewhere. But no matter what you do, if it doesn't go to ground, you don't get no shiny light. And I've tried to explain that to people different ways, different forms, but uh, you're really talking about the same machination that I used with kidneys in the sea. We have some type of kidney effect that happens to those garments. And you're explained in a variety of ways in the New Testament that uh, this action will even heap burning coals on your enemy's head. And that's exactly what he was talking about. Those good works. Uh, those giving to the poor, those taking care of those who cannot take care of themselves, that actually provides a type of, well, kidney action for the soul. And in what is to come, it should be easily recognized that you can't get your hind's feet unless somebody else has had parts of their anatomy removed. There's got to be a cleansing action. And if the light comes from the electricity, make no mistakes about it. It doesn't burn until that electricity goes to ground. And in that place, there's darkness indeed. Amen. I would like to continue to go through this list. Um... There's a really good way to just see the timeline if we start at the beginning, but I started where I did because <laughs> dealing with this suffering is just such an important subject because it's something that is so that seems so foreign to everyone. And um 
Well, I like the way he says it at the end of the second chapter of Hebrews. Um, he says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to take propitiation for sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And you know, if you are dealing with alcohol, a recovered alcoholic is someone who can actually help you. Alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, my grandfather actually was a horrible drunk and he was um, sober for much of his life because he had been to Alcoholics Anonymous and that um, no, you know, the help that you're able to get from someone who has suffered the way that you've suffered is, is, is huge. And I just want everyone to consider that it may be that the suffering that you're enduring right now may be simply so that someone else maybe currently or at some point in the future who's going to be experiencing the same exact thing, whether it be a difficulty in a marriage, difficulty with a child, difficulty with a parent or a job, they will be able to come to you and you'll be able to witness and hear them and help them because of what you've endured. And many times the things that we are dealing with or struggling with, whether it be financial relationships, whatever it happens to be, the fact that we have actually endured those things makes us a much better sounding board for someone who's currently in those situations. And please just consider that in all of eternity, your needs are going to be met. But this is the time, this is the day, this is the moment when you have the ability to help extend the kingdom, to share the love of the kingdom, and just be a light to that darkness. And having those experiences makes you a better vehicle for that. And take that perspective. Don't look at it as, why me? Look at it as, what is the purpose of this? What am I supposed to give as a result of having experienced this circumstance? And if you can change, perceive that suffering and embrace it, um, you you will bear fruit. And that's really all I have to say. Well, I think that I shall say, well, I shall read the, tech, the next two verses after the promise is given. I've already read the promise itself. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Riddle me, ladies and gentlemen, why did God, God, <laughs> do this thing? Why did Abraham only take his young men? One thing's for sure, you're all going to find out a whole lot sooner than you bargained for. With that, God bless and Godspeed. Signing off.